2: The attack was always in the back of my head. The scars that I have on my body represent a time in my life when I was scared and left helpless. But they also represent survival. You may be left with scars, but you can blossom into something powerful. You're a goofy girl. It's really been a lifelong journey of finding who did this to me. The summer of 1990, i just finished the second grade. I just love life, I love school, I loved learning. But as far as I can remember back in my childhood, I just didn't like the dark or sleeping alone. So I found comfort in going to bed with my mom. We were all that we had was each other. That night I was very restless and my mom turned to me and said, you know, you're kicking me you your sleep and I have to work in the morning. Would you mind going into your own room tonight? And I turned and I said, just because I love you, mom, I'm going to sleep in my own room tonight. So I left my mother's room, went into mine, and I had a big lamp that was shaped like a light bulb. And I remember clicking it on and it lit the whole room up. That was the brightest lamp ever. <laughs> and I got some books and just read until I fell asleep. The next thing I remember was waking up in the arms of a man that I didn't know. He was running with me, carrying me down the sidewalk, and I immediately tried to scream, but he covered my nose and mouth. He had me sitting on his lap as he was driving and held me there. He's trying to calm me down telling me, everything's going to be okay. I'm an undercover police officer. As a child, I wanted to believe him, but the part of me that had just learned about strangers in school, the part of me that was scared of the dark, knew that there was something really wrong here. As we were driving, we passed my grandparents' home I started to realize that I had actually been kidnapped. I was very afraid of what would happen next. He pulled into the parking lot of my elementary school. He told me to watch the moon, and when the moon changed colors, my mother would be pulling in the parking lot to pick me up. I remember anxiously waiting for those headlights, but they never came. I think that at that point he was trying to psych himself up for what he really intended to do. I remember him saying, well, your mom's not coming and starting up the car. And we went just a few blocks away. It was a dead end gravel road and he pulled off in an overgrown field What went through my mind was sheer panic. And then he held a knife to my throat and said, am I scaring you, little girl? Am I scaring you? And then he choked me as hard as he could, and then he tried to break my neck. I blacked out for a while. I woke up to him dragging me by my ankles through this field and he dropped my legs. I heard him walk off, and I heard his car door slam and him drive away. I realized I couldn't scream, and I couldn't figure out why. I had just enough strength to throw my right hand on top of my neck, and that's when I felt this gaping wound and I looked at my hand and it was full of blood. I was eight years old. I was just left to die in a field.
3: Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Don't waste time on apps that don't work. Babbel's conversation-based teaching prepares you for real-life situations.
4: Many children who are abducted don't live to tell their stories. Jennifer's attacker tried to silence her, but she refused to let him. Jennifer told us she is sharing her story in the hope that she will inspire other women and girls to use their voices.
2: It became light outside. I remember looking up and seeing treetops and clouds. I couldn't move my body. I would try so hard to lift my head, but I just couldn't. I had ants crawling all over my body, stinging me. I would come in and out of consciousness. Every time I would come to, I would be in disbelief that I hadn't died yet. Laying there, I could kind of look to the side and through those blades of grass and all the brush see cars. It was like help was right there, and I can't get to it. I can't scream. I can't lift my head. I can't stand up, but I don't remember feeling scared. I remember feeling at peace with what was about to happen, which was dying.
5: Sometime early Friday morning, 8-year-old Jennifer Schuett was abducted from her apartment bedroom.
6: On August 10th, 1990, I did receive a call from dispatch that there was a possible kidnapping at the Yorktown apartments in Dickinson, uh, Texas. Dickinson Police Department at that time was a very, very small agency. As anything new develops, I'll be more than happy to talk with you all about it. We would have had, at the time, a total. It would have been three patrolmen and myself uh, working. This morning, Jennifer's mother entered the bedroom and found the bedroom window open and her daughter gone. We decided that it was best that we go ahead and try assemble the fire department and any volunteers that would be willing to come and search some of the fields nearby.
2: It was in the early evening. It was now getting to be dark outside again. The last time that I woke up, I heard children playing and I felt something hit my foot. These children had been playing a game of tag in the field and one of them had tripped over my foot thinking she had found one of her playmates. And that's how it was found. I remember going unconscious and then waking up to a police officer kneeling down beside me saying you've been found you're gonna be okay just please stay with me please stay with me and I remember being put into the life flight helicopter
6: Jennifer's condition was grave her throat had been cut from ear to ear and Quite possibly, we didn't, we didn't know that, but we felt that she probably would have been sexually assaulted. As she's airlifted, I'm thinking that we're obviously gonna have a murder case here. That's your initial thought. I mean, it, it, we're working a murder case.
7: When I first saw Jennifer in the emergency room, I mean, she was a fairly small eight-year-old, very pale, covered with ant bites and scratches on her back. She couldn't make any sounds uh, because of the injury that she had to her neck. She was alert and awake. She She would look at you. And you could see, you know, that she was very fearful. Her family can't be in there with her in this acute situation. We have to stabilize her first. We have to act somewhat like family uh, in their absence. We try to comfort her and try to reassure her, you know, that we're going to take care of you. You're in a safe place now. Nobody's going to hurt you here.
2: I remember being on a stretcher and then putting me into an elevator. I remember them taking the earrings out of my ears before surgery.
7: Jennifer's laceration went through her trachea, fortunately didn't involve any major vessels. We needed to put a tracheostomy tube in below where we did the repair. We completed her surgery, her airway is stable, she's not bleeding, so we're very hopeful Uh, about her survival.
8: I was on the night shift, came onto the unit, and noticed right away that there was a police guard outside the room. Standing there and looking at Jennifer, this little eight-year-old girl in this bed that has suffered this horrendous trauma and knowing that I had an eight-year-old little girl at home, my heart ached for her. And what on earth was her life going to be like? How, how was this going to affect the rest of her life? The majority of my shift was sitting there at her bedside. Even at night, if she was sleeping, I was there. I was in the room with her. She had some trauma to her face and there was some trauma from from being sexually assaulted.
2: I was unconscious and didn't know what had happened. I wasn't aware until I was in the hospital and really then like at eight years old you don't really understand
8: what rape means. She just struck me as being my own and here I was charged with with caring for her. And so I took care of her as if she was my own.
2: I was kind of a hard patient to deal with because I had a lot of male doctors and I was scared of males. I remember even kicking one of the male doctors in the stomach because I wanted him away from me. My mom and the doctors and nurses there reassured me that I was safe, that there was a police officer right outside of the door. This man that hurt me said he was a police officer. In my eyes, he used to say that these doctors could be trusted. Everyone was a suspect in my book. One of my uncles brought me a little Tinker Bell makeup set. And that's how I had seen myself in the mirror for the first time. I remember opening it up and feeling so ugly. Seeing all the blood vessels in the whites of my eyes broken from when he tried to strangle me and break my neck. It just didn't look like me.
6: Dickinson is a small community, tree line, real nice. Football is a major thing in Dickinson. This is not something that you would see. It hit home. I have children close to her age. You, you tend to take that personal when you see that. It can happen to my kids. So we want, we want to get this guy. An officer canvassing the area had discovered clothing in a ditch, a quarter of a mile, maybe less, from the scene. Need
11: to get somebody to
6: get them on the way, then. We determined that that clothing was that of Jennifer and that of the suspect. We needed that clothing because we felt that now we have evidence that we can match DNA to someone.
2: I remember having some members of law enforcement like having to come in and talk to me, but I would be just terrified.
6: She can write, you know, and blink her eyes and so forth, but I don't know how far into it we can, we can go without. Early on with Jennifer, we knew that we had a survivor that couldn't speak. The challenges were to, to extract information from her. Now we're, we're talking about an eight year old, it was
9: difficult.
2: That was just so frustrating to me to not be able to say what I wanted to in the way that I wanted to say it. It was mainly me writing notes to my mother, and then she would hand them to the officer outside.
8: The first night that Jennifer really started giving any details, I was with her, and her mother was asking her the questions. We were asking if she knew the person... What was he wearing? What did he look like? I
2: just remember remembering his name. And so I wrote, he said his name was Dennis. I remember saying that he looked greasy and like he may have had a scar or something on his face. She described the car to a T, the colors, the dent in the side. I remember writing down that there were beer cans in the car and the brand of cigarettes that he had. Just every little detail that I could remember, everything that I thought would help in finding him.
8: It tore at me that this little girl was having to sit there and and relive this and go over these details. It got to the point where I had to leave the room and cry. I could not break down in front of this little girl. I had to be strong for her. And I had to go back in with a strong face and and comfort her even more. She was the bravest little girl I'd ever met.
12: I got to Jennifer about four days after she was attacked. I'll never forget Jennifer in that hospital that day and her beautiful blue eyes.
2: When Lois came in, she had these books. She said we would go through and for me to really look at the different types of eyes and the different noses and mouths and that together we would come up with a sketch. I couldn't talk. And I'm trying to describe a person through notes. And I'm traumatized, I'm medicated, and the attack just happened four days earlier. But she got me, like she just understood me.
12: And I draw like a printer. I just start at the top and go down. First, she gives me the hair and it's brown hair and she gives me a hairstyle. Then she picks some really dark eyebrows and eyes. And then she picked a normal nose, nondescript. I had her pick a mustache. And then we got to the lips. And the chin needed to have a lot of stubble. She saw a scar on his left side. I did the sketch in about one hour. I turned it around. And when she saw it, she shook her head yes.
2: I was pretty confident that the sketch looked like the person who had taken me.
12: I signed it, dated it, handed it to an officer that was there in the hospital waiting for it. I felt confident they were gonna find him.
4: Jennifer was determined to find her attacker. Even at the age of eight, she understood he needed to be stopped before he could hurt anyone else. Police had never seen that kind of courage and resolve packed into a 45-pound frame.
7: To see more of Jennifer's notes to police, join us on Facebook at 48 Hours.
4: Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana.
11: It doesn't get any better than this.
2: I think I was almost sad to leave the hospital in a way. This place had kind of become a safe haven to me. But I had come leaps and bounds. I even regained my voice while I was in the hospital. I like to say I haven't shut up since. But going back out into this world where you were just so viciously attacked, like who would want to go back into that? You know, it was scary for me. And then you have to start school. I started school right on time. The rest of my classmates, third grade, and had police there at the school because the whole community was on edge. No one knew who had done this to me.
6: Right now, we just don't have any new information. As time is progressing, the leads are getting colder and colder and you're losing your resources. It's very frustrating. The case gets cold.
2: As the years passed, the attack was always in the back of my head. I had been so traumatized. I didn't ever want to really be home alone or at nighttime. I was even more scared of the dark very fearful of men for some time. Every day growing up for me in the town of Dickinson was like I was on a hunt looking for a suspect. Thinking it could be anyone. This could be our new neighbor. This could be someone at the post office, someone at the grocery store. Is he watching us? Is he gonna come back and finish me off? But I continued on. I graduated high school, I started attending college, and then eventually I was a children's librarian at a local public library. And I loved that job. Jonathan has been there for me through most of my adult journey dealing with my case. So he has been my biggest cheerleader. Over time, my case was handed off so many times. It just became almost unbearable for members of my family to deal with that. So we got to a point where we just really didn't talk about it. And then I got a phone call that Detective Tim Cromie would be taking over my case and he wanted to meet with me.
10: I was excited about sitting down with Jennifer for the first time. It it, it didn't go quite the way I thought it was going to go.
2: I was so frustrated. I thought, here we are, 18 years later. What's this guy going to do? I sat there in his cubicle and cried.
10: I handed her tissue after tissue. She was very much concerned about other people being victims of the person who victimized her. Gave me just a great feeling about her. And I told her, I said, Jennifer, I will do whatever I can do in my power till the end of my career to get you the answers that you need for this case.
2: And that simple sentence changed my life. I felt like he was as dedicated to the solving of my case as I was. The next phone call that I got was he was bringing Agent Richard Renison on board.
11: This was the most violent crime I've investigated where the victim survived. It was a unique aspect of having Jennifer there to help with certain aspects of the case that otherwise we had never known.
2: I really wanted to be a part of the solving of my own case. I wanted to help because I was the only living witness. And I wanted to go to trial and see this through to the end. I wanted to be able to face the person that wanted to silence me and show them that I came out victorious.
11: Often work in cold cases, time is your enemy. People forget, people move away, people die. This was one of the benefits of time in our case was the advances of technology in the DNA field.
2: And then before I knew it, they were submitting evidence that was still in the Galveston County Sheriff's Office evidence room. They felt like the answer might be right there.
11: We picked out four pieces of evidence Jennifer's t-shirt, underwear, and the male's underwear and t-shirt. We sent those items off to the FBI lab in Quantico, Virginia.
10: Both Richard and I knew that this was an 18-year-old case, and this was not gonna be a case that was gonna take priority up at the lab.
11: As time went on, and it took so long, my optimism faded. If we didn't get a DNA hit, I I wondered if we were ever gonna solve this case. It took well over a year to get the results of the DNA test back. It was 2.30 in the morning. My phone rings, and it's the DNA lab. The DNA examiner told me we got a hit. When I heard the name Dennis Earl Bradford as our offender, my first response was, who? Who is that? We never saw that name in a report, but at the same time, it was a really exciting phone call to say that we got a match and that that person is out there. I immediately called Tim Cromie. I said, who is Dennis Earl Bradford? Dennis Earl Bradford was convicted in 1997 for kidnapping in Hot Springs, Arkansas. Sexually assaulted a woman that he had met at one of the local bars. Bradford was sent to prison, and it was from that sexual assault that his DNA was put into the national database that ultimately matched back to the evidence we submitted. Once we got the name Dennis Bradford, it was a couple days later when Tim and I made the connection back to the notes that Jennifer wrote saying his name was Dennis. Jennifer was eight years old, on pain medication, couldn't speak, and hand wrote down, he said his name was Dennis. And then all of these years later, for that to actually be the fact, At that point, it was monumental that this girl was so accurate. Of course, later we found out how accurate she was on everything.
9: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
13: Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are.
11: We had a DNA match to Dennis Bradford, and he was living in Arkansas. Since
10: the time that he had been released from prison, it appeared that he was living just a normal lifestyle.
11: We had to find a link to him being in Dickinson to show that he could have been the one that committed this crime. I contacted the driver's license bureau in Texas, and they were able to get me a photograph from his driver's license that was taken only a few months before the attack on Jennifer. I was floored. Called Tim, almost in a panic state. He was a little excited. Tim, get to your computer, you gotta see this picture, this picture. It was almost as if Lois Gibson was drawing a sketch based on that driver's license photo. It was that accurate. I've never seen a composite drawing so close to the actual suspect and then from a young child who'd been through that experience, that's unbelievable. We were
10: able to establish that Dennis Earl Bradford had at least two different addresses in Dickinson.
11: Both places were very close proximity to Jennifer and her mother's apartment. This is the window. Yeah. Crazy. And where he lived was right at that water tower. So it was very important that we were able to place him in the area at the time the assault occurred. Go down, meet with the DA's office, review the case. The district
10: attorney authorizes charges for attempted capital murder.
11: Get the arrest warrant. And if convicted, he could spend the rest of his life in prison. We traveled to North Little
10: Rock to meet with officers from North Little Rock Police Department. They pulled him over on traffic stop and arrested him on a warrant.
2: When they called me that morning and told me that they really arrested this person, Dennis Earl Bradford, it was the most surreal moment of my life. It meant everything to me.
10: Richard and I got to meet Dennis Earl Bradford for the first time face to face.
11: From all outward appearances, he just looked like. The guy next door he lived with his wife and he had three adult stepsons. Bradford was a welder in Little Rock. Thing, pretty good day. You guys your homework? We were hoping, most importantly, to get a confession. We didn't want there to be any way this could be beat in court. You ever heard the name Jennifer Schulz?
10: Yes.
5: Okay, he
10: hear? told us that he remembered the story and seeing signs back in Dickinson about her being abducted. And praying for her.
5: Did you ever have occasion to come in contact with her? Yes. Tell me about that?
10: No. And the way he said no, it sent chills up up my spine.
6: Do you want to talk about it? No. A reason why. You did your homework.
10: And again, that was. To me, that was one of the coldest answers I've, I've ever heard.
11: You're right, get on homeward. He wasn't ready to give up any details of how he knew her.
5: If you're remorseful about this, people need to hear that. There's two sides to every story.
11: I explained he needed to provide all the details of the attack so Jennifer could have the closure that she needs after all these years.
5: Not a single day goes by I um, don't see that baker. There is no other side to the story. She was an innocent. And I was a sick, deranged, beat-up little f- punk.
11: It was a long, exhausting interview.
5: She wasn't anybody I remember. I don't remember why I pulled up in those apartments.
11: Bradford told us that he was driving around one night, and he just randomly pulled into a parking lot. And I
5: walked over to this window. I remember it was open, and I could see it, and the light was on.
11: I felt like he wanted to confess to everything, but just had a hard time saying it out loud. What do you want? I want you to just start talking.
5: Thought, everything that you did, everything that you could remember. I'm ready for this to be over. I'm sick and tired. I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm being afraid. Okay, forgive me, Mom. I pulled that little girl out. She was freaking out and I told her, please, just don't worry, it'll be all right. I told that little girl that I was a police officer and everything would be okay. I pulled off.
11: I said, let's hear it. Let's hear it.
5: I took that little girl out there and I raped her. And I cut her throat. I don't know why. I've never known why.
10: General Bradford told us that shortly after his attack on Jennifer he had attempted suicide. He was using a shotgun and just as he pulled the trigger he made the decision not to take his own life. A
5: hole in my dad's
10: roof 30 From there he was uh, transported down to the hospital
11: for an evaluation. And was put into the hospital in the psychiatric ward which happened to be the same hospital that Jennifer was still in. That was something we did not know beforehand.
6: Anything to say to Jennifer Shrewett, Jennifer? Jennifer.
11: We got the confession, uh, and and he filled in a lot of the blanks.
10: And to confirm a lot of what she remembered happened made her feel better about always wanting to remember.
2: I am not a victim, but instead victorious. I was so overwhelmed at the press conference. And then Detective Cromie and Agent Renison came into the room and hugged me and whispered in my ear, we told you we'd get him. At the time, that was the single most amazing moment of my life.
10: Well, Dennis R. Bradford was in, uh, in the county jail awaiting trial. I get a phone call in the middle of the night. Tim, I need to talk to you. You need to wake up. I've got some news to give you.
2: I'm headed to the field where I was left uh, back in 1990. I don't really visit there too often anymore. I used to like to go there a lot just to see if it would bring back any more memories. I just really wanted to be able to remember all the details of the attack so that one day I could go to court and tell my story the way I remembered
6: it.
2: After the arrest, I was preparing for trial. Everyone felt like we had a solid case and we would go for a life sentence. His attorney said he's going to plead guilty. He doesn't want to prolong this anymore. We don't want to jury trial and all of that, pick a day. So we were like, wow, how great would it be to pick August 10th, 20 years to the day of the attack and kind of just come full circle and close it out. I remember staying up late, endless nights, trying to perfect my victim impact statement, writing and erasing and writing again and erasing again, just trying to perfect what I wanted to say. I had 19 years worth of things to say to this person.
5: I still to this day don't understand
10: Dennis R. Bradford was in the county jail awaiting trial. I get a phone call in the middle of the night that woke me up and said Dennis Earl Bradford had committed suicide and hung himself in his jail cell.
11: All the work that we'd put together to get Jennifer her day in court was just gone. So we had to decide what would be the best way to tell Jennifer.
10: Not knowing if this information was going to be in the news in the morning. Richard and I decided to probably need to call her as soon as possible on the phone and let her know what had happened. It was not a good phone call.
2: When he was arrested, the first thing that I said after they told me they arrested him was, please don't let him kill himself.
10: I was just crying and screaming on the other end of the phone. She didn't want to believe it. I, most I can do is just tell her I was sorry.
2: The only thing that I can describe is devastation. I felt like everything that I had worked so hard for was just ripped away from me in an instant. I sat at Dennis Bradford's grave on August 10th, 2010, 20 years to the day that I was attacked. Dennis Bradford. I waited 19 years, two months, and three days to find out your last name and for you to be caught. I knew your first name. I sat there reading my victim impact statement. I was crying. You chose the wrong little 45 pound, eight year old girl to try and murder, because for 19 years, I've thought of you every single day and helped in searching for you. In my heart, I knew you were out there, alive, either in prison or living a lie. And now I know, listening to my heart all of these years and never giving up on finding you, I was right. I turned to my husband and I said, I wonder if he's hearing me. And just then, a single fire ant bit me on my leg. And I took that as a sign from God that he heard me loud and clear. I'm a very sentimental person, and I hang on to bonds that I've formed very tightly. So having people like Sharon and Detective Crummy and Agent Renison as a part of my personal life means a lot to me to know that they're still there, they're still supporting me. They're not leaving me anytime soon, just like I'm not leaving them anytime soon. When Jonathan and I found out that we were expecting, we were in complete shock. We just couldn't wait to see what parenthood had in store for us. My daughter Jenna was born at the end of 2012. Oh, you're the lucky duck! I actually don't even really remember what life was like without her. want to get out right now. Come on, because I gotta go. We wanted to give Jenna a sibling, and I now have a son as well. Jonah, what you got, a chair? He smiles constantly and laughs and is just such a happy baby. Jenna, no roaring in your brother's face, okay? It's like pinch me. Who would have thought that I'd have not one, but two beautiful, healthy children at the end of all of this? They're really my happy ending.
7: (laughs) Jennifer has become a fierce advocate for other crime survivors.
1: 500 500 that's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500 500
9: it only takes two
7: minutes of sheer horror
11: a new paramount plus original docuseries we were dealing with a serial killer preying on elderly women a cold-blooded killer hidden in plain sight He's suffocating people with a pillows
5: leaving corpses all over texas How did it happen?
8: I was responsible for her. The guilt is immeasurable. They covered it up.
5: Pillowcase Murders, now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.
0: Join me, 48 Hours correspondent Erin Moriarty, on my podcast, My Life of Crime, as I take on true crime investigations like no other. This season, I'm looking into the secrets within families, cutting straight to the evidence and talking to the people directly involved. Enjoy My Life of Crime on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on Wondery Plus.